I appreciate the opportunity to open up God's Word and allow His Spirit, which lives in me and in you all, as you've said and proclaimed, to speak through me to you, His people. And I'm particularly excited about helping Christ's community transition, as Nathan told me, from its sermon series on the Holy Spirit back to its year-long study in Matthew, if that is correct. Uh, Therefore, let us turn to a familiar passage, usually referred to as the Great Commission, and consider how the Holy Spirit in Matthew is also in us, how he's working through those who believe in Jesus Christ, and how I will be reading verses 18 through 20 in the 28th chapter of Matthew, coming from the ESV, or English Standard Version. It reads as thus, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thanks be to the Lord for his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask right now that you would give us a healthy fear of you. God, we ask that we would stand in awe of you and your beauty. God, that we would know your truth, that we would rejoice. We would rejoice in your goodness and that we would take. Hmm, thank you, Peter. God, that we would just recognize your faithfulness throughout all eternity. God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit that you would allow us to remember you and your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. From this topic, the Holy Spirit in Matthew and us, I want to leave you with these three points, with these two points, excuse me. First, even with all authority in heaven, God's Spirit is always with us. Second, even with all authority on earth, Jesus is working through us. And not only is this our promise from the beginning, but it is also God's plan until the very end of the age. Now, in the wake of the recent events in our sleepy college town, uh, I must admit that even as I prepared for this sermon, I really had to preach these words to myself. Like this is most of the time as I prepare for a sermon, I'm really trying to figure out what is God saying to me so I can say it to other people. But this was particularly true. Uh, See, I had I must admit that. I was struggling. I I led worship during a community prayer service last week at Mount Zion. uh, Mount Zion, first African Baptist church that's celebrating 150 years, along with a couple of other black churches. And if you take just a second, you say 150 years, that's kind of amazing. And you say, oh, it's directly connected to the Emancipation Proclamation and the freeing of slaves. And so as we're there, this historic place, thinking about all of these things, As a liturgist, even at Trinity, the church that I go to the next Sunday, as I'm leading the congregation in the worship of this great and awesome God, I just couldn't stop crying. I just couldn't stop thinking and wondering how long it would be before God's church's response to evil was something that would actually be beneficial to all of its community at that time. And I I was just there and I was thinking, when? When will we do these types of things and it doesn't take something like an event like this to cause it to happen? When will we be a little bit more proactive in these things? And the reason why it was so close to me is because my wife, 
Sarah, uh, who's with my son, who's eight months, and, and our cousin, who's four years old this morning, nap time didn't correspond with church this morning, um, but my wife and I moved to Charlottesville almost two years ago in order to help Trinity Presbyterian Church minister to a culturally and historically diverse community called Fifeville, and the Prospect neighborhood was a major component of that. Now, we both grew up about two hours south of here, uh, and we graduated from a place called Chatham High School in 2006, very close to Danville, Virginia, which was the last seat of the Confederacy. Now, there, our principals, our teachers, and even some of our friends strongly encouraged us not to date outside of our race. So we knew, even as seniors in college, that our relationship would not be universally accepted, uh, especially not universally uh, celebrated. In fact, when I asked Sarah's dad, who had become a close friend of mine at the time, if I could date his daughter, this was before I asked for a hand, when I asked could I date his daughter, he initially refused uh, to give his blessing because he feared, this was his response, he feared that any children born to us would have to struggle more as biracial than if he or she was just white. And I agreed with him. But then... I said something that I never had thought of, yet absolutely believed. That suffering with Christ is a promise for those who hope to be raised with him. That suffering with Christ is actually something that's promised by Jesus Christ for all of those who hope to be raised with him. Whereas the sufferings of this current age, whether they be related to sin or prejudice, injustice, or any of those isms, sexism or racism, where, where they are addressed by Jesus personally, those things should not take place in his body, the church, and will not be part of his new creation. So as I started to look at all of these things, I, I was, this was a very tough conversation, but we, we suffered through it. And I must say, the next day, he apologized in an email that simply read, To Jacob from Laban. He was extremely supportive for the rest of our uh, dating time. And when I asked to marry my beautiful bride a few months later, I could not have asked for a better response or a better embrace from what is now my father-in-law. He has become a great father figure to me, and we're close friends. I am proud now to be a father of that child that he was very concerned of. And my prayer for him is the same now as my answer to his grandfather almost eight years ago. I continue to pray that the suffering that we engage in is due to our union with Christ and obedience to God's spirit rather than the color of our skin. But this, this still had me crying on this day. So many years later, so many things going on. Why was I crying in this moment? And I started to ask the question because I used to think, oh, I just cry because God is so great. And it's just this emotion. It's cathartic. It's wonderful. That's why I'm crying. But then I said, well, there's something in the Bible that says, but all tears will be wiped away. So that doesn't seem like a response that I'll have in the new heaven and the new earth. So it says there must be something particularly fallen about my tears. I said there must be something about these tears that only exist in a fallen world. I said because in the new heaven and the new earth, they won't be there. He will wipe them all away. I said, so what is this about? Not just God being beautiful, but it's every time I have to then imagine the fact that there are places where that beauty, places where that power, places where that majesty still aren't permeating. It was a difficult thing for me to think as I recognized that the Holy Spirit was working in both my 
white pastor and our black drummer and my Mexican friend and then my biracial son. Right then, when I saw God very high and lifted up, when I felt the glory, when it was like I saw Jesus in all of his glory, that I remembered, even in the light of that heaven, that in a few minutes, I was going to have to pray a prayer that would address the realities of this earth. The horrible murder was something that I would actually have to mention in just a few seconds. That the division within our church that directly related to racism, even in this intellectual hub in 2017, was something that the prayer of supplication really needed to address. I had to pray these things, so I was crying because God's spirit was with me. But that spirit was so grieved by the way that even I put things like my family, my possessions, or my pride before him. I was crying because Jesus was telling me that he was tired of his church remaining silent or talking about its prosperity rather than trusting his promises and doing his work. So this morning, I thank God for the opportunity to preach on the conclusion of the book of Matthew and to articulate what I see as the Christian struggle here. I pray that God uses me to encourage you as you struggle with all types of things, that we know that God's word is true that his son is risen and his Holy Spirit has been poured out. Also, I hope that during the next week and throughout the course of our lives, that we will remember God's promise from the beginning, that even with all authority in heaven, that our father loves us and his spirit is always with us. And when our addictions, when our responsibilities, when our fears or our worries try to overtake us, that we will remain faithful until the end of the age, knowing that even with all authority on earth, that our risen Savior has chosen to work in vessels such as us. Now, the book of Matthew has more chapters than any other gospel. And you look at it, and you say, oh, it's probably the longest. But it's still about 80 verses shorter than Luke. It takes about two and a half hours to read it. And I told Nathan the other day, when I said what I would do to prepare for preaching, is like, I'll read through Matthew. And that's what I did the last time I preached here. So this is my second time preaching to Christ's community. Last time it was Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. And that time I read all through Matthew for a couple of reasons. First off, because I don't really know who you all are. A lot of times you can preach and you can say, oh, such and such is going through this, or this person is perhaps going through that. And even as you're reading God's word, you see things that are directly connected to individuals and you, you really care about them and you pray for them all throughout. I didn't have as many pictures and stories to go on. The second thing is, is because I feel like I needed to know the whole story. It had been a while since I'd been in Matthew uh, and really read it. And I said, to take one passage out of the whole book, I will more than likely take it out of context. I feel like the best context was the whole book, so I read the whole book. And interestingly enough, I can tell you that from the very beginning that I began to see this, this theme of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that was working in and through his people. So our first point out of these thousand or so verses is that even with all authority in heaven, God's Spirit is always with us. It's simple and it's taken straight from the text. Even with all authority in heaven, God's spirit is always with us. And the word gospel means good news. And this is perhaps the best good news for the people living in this fallen world. 
See, the God of the universe and the very creator of every living thing has chosen to not only give us his spirit. We know that that has happened in times before. But now he also promises not to take it away from those who believe. This may seem like a small deal. But this is truly a new thing when Jesus Christ says it to his disciples. You see, the Jews knew all about God's spirit. But throughout their history, he was somewhat fickle. He makes an appearance in Genesis, in Exodus, in Numbers. Even we see him in Judges, in Samuel, in Kings, in Psalms, in Job and Isaiah, even in Ezekiel. But even in all of these, he only indwells with a small minority. He remains only a little while and often departs with no return. This is what happens with Saul. The spirit of God is with him and then he goes He's, and he does not return. In fact, most of his acts in the Old Testament are defined by mysterious majesty. And even the prayers in which he, we mentioned suggest a fear that he will not remain. One of my favorite songs that I've gotten from my current tradition is this. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. It shows us that tension that we have that at some point in time, or at least that the psalm writer had, that the Holy Spirit would not remain. It's this request that, God, would you stay? So these words are a big deal when Jesus speaks to them. He is declaring something different, something that he has that they would have never known about the Holy Spirit. God is doing a new thing in his people. Now Christ is promising that God's Holy Spirit will be with them. These little children, whether they're rich farmers or poor city dwellers, whether they're the prophets, priests or daughters, every hour of the day for all eternity. That is what Jesus declares after his resurrection. But it is important to note that this is a promise in God's word from the very beginning. See, in Genesis 1-2, even with all authority in heaven, it's God's spirit that's always hovering over the face of the waters. When he decides to create the heavens and the earth, and he is at least part of the audience from which the Father is speaking when he says, let us make man in our own image. Also, it's God's spirit in the beginning of Jesus' story in Matthew. See, it's that story that's the good news that Mary hears with some fear and some rejoicing. For not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit will Jesus Christ be conceived. And in this moment, we see two emotions that often accompany. First, fear, then rejoicing. And rightfully so. The God who has all authority in heaven who hates sin and despises wickedness, whose thoughts are higher than ours, whose mind is unsearchable, the God who brings down nations and their gods. He is not just interested in humanity, but will never turn his gaze from them. There is nothing hidden from him, and according to Jesus in John's gospel, the very work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin righteousness and of judgment the fear and rejoicing that the spirit brings is also seen in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is led immediately from his baptism by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan we rejoice because we know how the story ends 
But if you take just a second to think about all of the details and the way in which the writer says it, after going 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking, then you recognize that this work of the Holy Spirit is not just a joyous thing, but it is one that would have been very difficult. Our second point is even with all authority on earth, Jesus' spirit is working through us. This takes us, this takes us to a place where we can think about Jesus' spirit and his work. This point is also very clearly demonstrated in the passage. In fact, here the specific work is even named. Going to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded. But the followers of Jesus must not think that these marching orders are his alone or for them alone. For we can do nothing without God's spirit who is always with us. In fact, it is Jesus when talking about the days to come who says to his disciples, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. These words are just a foretaste of the fear and the rejoicing that we experience as agents of God's Holy Spirit. The believer also must not think that the destination or the duration is his to decide. Instead, it is Jesus' work that the Spirit of God is doing. We are mere servants, yet we are given a most glorious honor. Therefore, let us remember what Christ says concerning himself in Matthew 12, verse 18 through 32. And consider the promises from Isaiah. For it says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Likewise, Jesus has given us a destination to the nations. And he's given us a timeline until the end of the age. But what about baptizing and teaching? We think about that. Most of us are not going to be in places where we're actually baptizing people and where we're leading the whole church in teaching. This is the point of the Holy Spirit. And we see it throughout the scriptures that we are being formed, many members into one body. And that's what the body does. The body baptizes, the body teaches, and all of us do not have the same gifts. Even with all of these gifts that we have, we must recognize that it is the same Holy Spirit living and working through each of us. How Jesus Christ deals with all of the things that he has to deal with is through this spirit. The hurts, the most difficult parts of life, he responds to with obedience and love for his father. In in chapter 27, verse 50, it's Jesus who's crying out with a loud voice before he yields up his spirit. We recognize that the fear and the rejoicing that we experience is part of our obedience to the command and the promise of God. As you all say, we are real people. Right. We're looking for real community and we have real needs. So I know you're probably asking, how do we walk by the faith? 
How do we actually apply this? What does it look like for this spirit, which is in Matthew, to actually manifest itself in us today? So I give you these few suggestions that you would actually use your bodies for him. What does this mean? What does this mean that you would give your goods unto him? Is it time spent with a friend? Is it making a relationship with a neighbor? What is it that his spirit is using you to do to actually declare the good news about Jesus Christ? How is your household and your friendships a reflection of the love that Jesus Christ has with the spirit and the father? How is it that our time and our vocations are being used to develop the right types of relationships? So that when people ask us about our hope, we can point to the diversity. We also say that our common worship is a place where the Holy Spirit is working. That by coming together, we can see God manifested in a bunch of different ways. And that we can read his word and be sure that the Holy Spirit that we think we see is the one that's actually presented in the Bible. The resurrection is our hope and reconciliation is a journey. Even with all authority in heaven, God has decided that he's going to be with us and that this work is to be accomplished through us and in us. This is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing in his in the current age. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in Matthew. This is the plan until the end of the age. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ Central, for my friend Nathan and the work that you are doing through him and the work that you are doing in all of your people. God, we are so happy that you have brought us to a place where we wrestle with fear, but where we find rejoicing in you. God, we are thankful that although you have all authority in heaven, that you've poured out your spirit and promised to always be with us. That this promise is from the beginning and we know that you will bring it to fulfillment. God, we pray also for our neighbors, for our friends, for those who do not know you. For those who are currently outside of your will, outside of your faith. God, we do ask that you would do the work in us. That we might encourage, that we might strengthen, that we might build up godly communities friendships, partnerships. God, that we might show your love to these individuals and one day they may ask, what must I do to be saved? God, I do ask that until the very end of this age that you would equip us, that you would use us for your work. God, allow your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.